What's up, everybody? My guest in this episode is Everett Hufford, Professor Emeritus at Harding School of Theology. He served as a cross-cultural missionary in Nazareth, Israel, among Palestinian Arabs. He was Professor of Leadership and Missions at HST for over 30 years. He directed the Doctorate of Ministry program there for 10 years, then served as Vice President and Dean for another 15. He's been a consultant for countless congregations and much more. But I'll add on a personal note that Everett is a teacher and mentor who has made an indelible impact on my life. So I'm excited to share a conversation which covers Zionism, the conflict between Israel and Palestine, the motivation for Christian mission, and the status of theological education. So here it is, episode five, with my friend, the Everett Hufford. Everett, thank you for joining me. It's wonderful to be able to talk to you. Thank you. Good to see you. Yes, sir. Um, I, I'm excited. I've been wanting to talk about a number of things with you for a while, uh, as I kind of dreamed about the podcast, and and uh, and and more recently, um, I should say, predating current events, but but fairly recently have kind of gone down a, well, I don't know if it's a rabbit trail, but but it's certainly a path thinking about Christian Zionism and the implications of that, the origins of that, uh, what, it, what it means for Christian mission in particular, because um, just if you'll allow me by way of sort of uh, hopefully not too long an introduction to the question for me, uh, the issue arose out of relationships because I formed really good friendships with some folks in a different tradition whose whose many of whose values I share and 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 really appreciate their focus on um, mission and 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 participating in what God's doing in the world uh, but for them, that's very overtly and and even centrally uh, couched in Christian Zionism, and and their concern is 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 for the nations, as they would put it, but maybe primarily for what's happening, sort of politically, historically in Israel, that will lead to more. Uh, and and we, I'm sure we'll touch on some of that as we go, but I would love to give our listeners a sense of why I thought of you when I was pondering these questions, and then and then have some of that conversation. So if you would tell us the background, your background that's sort of relevant to that question. That's a big question, uh, yes. one that I I, I really don't. Honestly, feel qualified to to answer well, but I, I mean, I have some, perfect, you know, some perspectives on it. But, <laughs> uh, there, there are others I think I can point you to, and and, and here's the reason why: because my exposure to uh, the Middle East started when I was a teenager. When I was 13, my parents moved to Jerusalem on the east side, and in 19, we moved there in 1963. At that time, from 1947 to 1967. 
Jerusalem was a divided city like Berlin. And so all of the West Bank, which East Jerusalem is on the West Bank, uh, was a part of Jordan. So Ramallah, Nablus, you know, all of that was a part of Jordan. And I went to high school in Ramallah. It was, uh, so I was the only American in an Arab boys' school. It was obviously all Palestinians. And for four years then, I was exposed to their culture, to their, you know, political worldview, to um, their values, which were very different than the values I had as a kid from New Mexico at 13, moving into that context. It was, I would imagine. I had a real dose of culture shock the first year. Got through it and was really blessed by it. Hmm. And then uh, was evacu- we were evacuated during the Six-Day War, 1967. I went on to college. My mother and dad and sister moved back to Jerusalem, which was now a united city in Israel. So after finishing college, getting married, my wife and our kids moved to Nazareth, Israel. And so we lived in Israel five years. So I had four years in Jordan, five years uh, in Israel, working with a Christian high school that uh, our fellowship had opened and began in Elaboon, which is a village uh, Mm -hmm. between Nazareth and the Sea of Galilee and working with a church, a small church uh, in Nazareth. So I had um, so, some interesting interactions because while I'm, I speak colloquial Arabic, nine years experience, I mean, I've worshipped in Arabic uh, nine years of my life. Yeah. And yet while I was in Nazareth, uh, the chaplain at the English hospital and myself got a permit to visit anyone registered as Christian in in any uh, prison in Israel, kind of a sort of a volunteer chaplaincy kind of thing, which gave us access to a lot of the Palestinians who've been put in prison, uh, mm-hmm. who were registered as Christians. Uh, there was one American girl that I visited that she got in trouble because her 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 boyfriend was a a terrorist from Southern Lebanon that sent her through the <laughs> Israel taking pictures of stuff, uh, you know, all kinds of things like that. <clears throat> so. And so my interaction, my closest interaction with uh, kind of Jews, especially Orthodox Jews, was the the rabbi who was over the prison system and uh. through whom I, you know, got the we got the permits. And he was really nice. And we, you know, we had, a, I thought, a very good relationship. It was at a time when the more moderates to secular Jews actually ran the country. Um, and over and the you would rec- say that's well, not moderates, but secular would still be predominant, right? Uh, or, 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 that's changed. Uh, not, that's changed with the new government. In order to have a government, uh, Netanyahu has had to cater to the the Zionists and the, the real okay, radical. Okay, so there's right. a there's a coalition that's political. Yes, yeah, and yeah, so yeah. they and they've taken over the Ministry of Religion. So uh, okay. even Baptists can't get visas to go to Israel. So they. Uh, which is, uh, I, I find it ironic that American evangelicals are so pro-Israel when the missionaries who've been there are very anti because of the way the radical Zionists have kind of taken uh, over okay. and not given them. I mean, we had two visas, but we couldn't. I couldn't live there now if I wanted to, even though if if we went by status quo, we we could actually get a working visa to Israel. But the Baptists got hit a lot harder than we did, so. 
Wow. You know, there's another side to it that you okay. know, a lot of people don't see. So even within the Baptists who are very even premillennial or very pro-Israel, uh, talk to their missionaries, you'll get a different picture who, yeah. who've actually well, been over there. I think there's probably a, a handful of sides to it or more. I mean, that's what my leading, my my my, my reading has led me to. And so, yeah, that's exactly why why I'm interested in in your perspective with all the all the experience you have. But you, so you were saying at that time, uh, more secular. Yeah. Uh, so it, yeah, yeah it, it's, so I I felt like um, I, I didn't I wasn't as engaged with the Jewish community obviously as I was with the Arab community because <clears throat> there is such a difference. Um, and so we we really tried to commit our energies to working, you know, among the Arabs. So I I could speak more into kind of their culture and worldview than than I probably could the uh, the the Zionist. Well, yeah, and that's precisely for me. I I realize that having spoken with you some before, um, but as but as as I say, as I've read. And tried to parse out, you know, in the now in the context of the Israel-Hamas war, um, the way that Christians think about this situation, just Christians broadly, and then specifically the way that Zionist Christians think about this, and Zionism has, I mean, I would say the terminology has morphed some, um, and and really been weaponized politically in the West, um, it's evident to me that part of what's lacking is precisely a, an appreciation for the worldview that you're referring to, right? What it is to be neighbors and servants of um, Arab, both Muslims and Christians, and I would assume uh, well, I don't know. I don't know how much secularism there there was in in your experience, but um, yeah, I, I I would love to hear more about that. Uh, kind of what that worldview looks like from your perspective, and what you learned about the relationship between those two groups as you were living in the midst of it. Uh, the you know, if you're on the ground. Uh, in fact, over the last 15, 20, maybe 15, 20 years or more, I have really appreciated efforts of religious groups uh, throughout the Arab and Jewish community to integrate to, you know, the there, there's there has been a commitment to getting along with your neighbors, uh, understanding different cultural groups, you know, the growing Arab population, even within Israel, who are Israeli citizens. There are Arabs who are members of Knesset. Uh, yes. You know, so there you've, you've got at, at one level the, the efforts to, to work uh, and accept one another and kind of be integrated in a society. Mm -hmm. But over the last, 15 years, this growing element of the illegal settlers on the West Bank, the, the Zionists, many of whom are coming from outside, uh, but gaining a lot of political clout, but would not represent the majority, which we know that can happen in our own country. Sure. Uh, but because they, they can make a lot of noise, um, are really the ones, I think, kind of lighting the fuse to what we're seeing today. 
that okay. I really don't think represents the the majority of the Israeli population. Right. Uh, I mean, what happened on October seventh? That you know, natural reaction to that. Uh, but I think it's uh, the way it's transpired now. I mean, we're ninety days into a, a pretty brutal war that is now raising all kinds of questions and Israel is uh, being viewed a whole lot differently uh, globally that uh, I'm concerned for Israel. I'm concerned for the Jews in our own country yeah. uh, because it has repercussions for everybody. Uh, and I, I don't think the Americans are going to escape uh, some uh, retaliation as well. Uh, it's just mm. that the further this goes, the more it makes a pacifist out of me. Yes. It just, yes. uh, all the way around. It's, it's really ugly. Okay. So you refer to the Zionists in relation to the illegal settlements. Would you, would you explain just a little bit about, um, first, when you use that word, what, what do you mean exactly? Cause I think it's different. Like the, the, like I said, the term gets thrown around a lot, but you're using the term in view of personal experience. And so I'm curious how exactly you would define what is a Zionist. And then, and then we'll talk about illegal settlements. The ones that are, I mean, they probably, as you well know, uh, two Jews, two rabbis will have three opinions. So they're, 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 they're not all, unified either, but I think the ones that surface the most visible are the ones that feel like they have rights to the land and they're taking those rights. Um, And the land being all Israel. Well, all of Palestine. Yeah, yeah. All of Palestine. And basically would want the Palestinians to be placed somewhere else which is known as ethnic cleansing. Right. And they're the taking very thing, their... The very thing that, that that the other side is being accused of with the slogan, from the river to the sea. Exactly. It's They're, okay. they're exchanging equal blows, I think, on that. Right. Um, and I think, as you well know, even in personal fights, it's easy to ramp it up and say things that you don't really mean, but the heat of the argument yes. kind of sends it to a new level because I... I, I I never knew any Arab in, in all of my associations that didn't uh, that would want to run all of the Jews into the sea. That's it, it's a reality. Israel's a reality. They they most would that's, know that. That's really important for people to hear. I mean, I think again, just being on the ground in relationship with people, having multiple years of conversations. And I'm sure that, that politics comes up. I'm sure that opinions get expressed. And for you to say, I never knew any Arab personally who imagined even the possibility, much less wanted, to drive out all of the Jews. But that's yeah. so important for people to hear. Because they've worked with the Jews. They, they've been neighbors to the Jews. They, you know, right. the ones that live in Israel do. And there's a right. lot of Palestinians that cross the border every day to work in Israel. You know, so it's, um, I mean, you know, I live in Memphis. And uh, the normal people in Memphis never make the news. Only the, the, 
the ones who are committing crimes get into the news. Right. And, you know, it's just a matter of what ends up in this, you know, 30-second uh, news clip mm-hmm. is not representative of everybody. I mean, I wished, uh, you know, even when it comes to our mass shootings here, I wish they'd never be televised. They, they would get no yeah. airtime. Right. You know, that way they don't, you know, go down as some kind of uh, infamous person or whatever yeah, it no, is. No but, 15 minutes of fame for no, shooters. No, they shouldn't even right. get it. Just, you know, but that's not the way our world works. And No, people want to see. So, so yeah. what happens is we're ending up, which we've seen, and it's been studied by sociologists, the, the, the spiral and the cycle of violence that goes on generationally. Uh, certainly since mm-hmm. 1947, mm-hmm. and after you know almost a million Palestinian refugees, uh, many of whom are still living in refugee camps in southern Lebanon and in yeah. outside of Bethlehem and and in the West Bank, that that uh, you know as they live generation after generation, it obviously feels hatred when your land was taken from you. You were expelled from your land. Yes, and and what's happening now, um, well, everybody, you know, the, the normal people in Gaza would have reason to have had hard feelings about Israel. I guarantee they're not going to get any better the next few generations, given what's happening now. I mean, sure. they're they're mad at Hamas for the way Hamas has treated them, but they're even more angry with what Israel is doing to them. So it's, yeah. you know, that you will not win over another generation. Uh, you will not, um, you know, I don't see how you make peace when you continue to feel the anger and the hatred that mm-hmm. has generated the problems that we're facing today. Um, so yeah, violence begets violence. It does. And, and I think that's what, that's one thing we can just take away from it, that, mm-hmm. uh, even in our country, as we start ramping up our rhetoric, it leads to actions and, we, you know, our, our loss of civility in our country uh, yes. and our sort of shameful ways is not going to lead to anything good. Um, and I, I think you can just kind of see it over there that uh, I, I don't know, short of the, the world uh, really holding everybody accountable and putting a lid on it, uh, it could really end up in some pretty ugly stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, are you in contact with, I mean, do you, do you speak on the phone with, um, Christians in, uh, in Palestine, mm-hmm. Arab Christians? Yeah. So what's, what are you, what are you hearing from Nazareth, them? Uh, I yeah. stay in touch with them as well as in Bethlehem. Yeah. Uh, life is tough. They, um, you know, in Nazareth, they're they're quite a ways away from Gaza Strip, and they they were never in range of the rockets. But now, with the the, the tensions ramping up with Hezbollah in southern Lebanon, that could really affect uh, people in Nazareth. Because you know, every five years or so, there's always something that's there's tensions with southern Lebanon, and I guess it's probably ten years ago, something like that. When Hezbollah started shooting rockets at northern Israel, one of them actually landed in in downtown Nazareth and killed three people. Yeah, and uh, the the 
it wasn't obviously intentional. They they weren't that sophisticated of you know rockets <laughs> really aiming. Yeah, yeah. So they didn't really want to hurt any other any Arabs living in Israel. So their take on it was they became heroes for the cause. Oh yeah, nice propaganda, some spin. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I fear that's uh, that's what Hamas has done to Gaza is just volunteered so many of those folks to be heroes for their cause. Um, and man, it's 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 sad to see. Uh, and you would like to see, you would like to see, you know, Israel like take a take a moral stance in order to kind of break the cycle. But um, as with Americans, the rage and retribution. Is just overwhelming, and uh, I just don't see I don't see that happening realistically, politically. Very sad, but I do hope I do hope that there are Christians who are involved in those places. I mean, I know that there are some Christians even in Gaza, which what a nightmare. But but um, I, I hope that there are some Christians who are able to articulate on both sides a, a vision of peace that right now seems to be totally lacking yeah yeah yesterday israel came out with what will happen you know day one after the war which was interesting because i think uh, u.s has been putting pressure on them and others you know to start looking at that and um i without a serious change of heart or a change of government israel uh, I don't know what that's going to look like, but I think they're hoping the international community will come and help rebuild Gaza, or some are even talking about them displacing all the Palestine, Palestinians from Gaza, you know, especially yes. those settler types. Uh, they're, they're even drawing up plans for uh, beach houses <laughs> in Gaza. Okay. Uh, so, so, yeah, so that, that takes us to the, the, the illegal settlement question that was sort of pending um so for those who don't know essentially what's happening is that after each of the wars i mean you mentioned 67 and then i think that there were some subsequent conflicts that sort of redrew boundaries but there are these agreements about which spaces israel occupies right uh that are official and then there are groups of people, Jews, uh, who say we're still gonna we're still gonna settle other areas. And what that often entails is evicting Arabs from ancestral homelands uh, in order to occupy that space and expand Israel's territory, sort of off the books, so to speak. Um. So. I mean, how, how how do you think about that? If you're a if you're a missionary in relationship to Arabs experiencing this, how do you how do you think with them about that kind of experience? Uh, the ones I were living with in in Israel didn't have that. These were certainly yeah. the ones on the West Bank in in more recent years, because this has just ramped up in the last decade. Uh, the one thing I did do, which is kind of an interesting story, there was a time when, and it'll also explain 
the current uh, issue of uh, Netanyahu trying to uh, take more power away from the Supreme Court in Israel, since they don't really have a constitution. Yes. The Supreme Court has a lot of power. So back in the 80s, uh, land was taken illegally uh, in the West Bank. They actually sued, and it went to the Supreme Court of Israel for the, the Palestinians to get their land back. And there was a very uh, famous Arab uh, Arab uh, attorney who was defending them in Israel. He was an Israeli Arab uh, attorney taking their, their case to the Supreme Court. Well, at the time, uh, I was vice president of the Rotary Club in Nazareth, which was the only Arab Rotary Club in all of Israel, okay. and uh, which was interesting. And so when we would have our meetings, it was like 50% uh, Muslim, 50% kind of Christian, traditional Christian, but the businessmen, typical Rotary you know, businessmen in the community. And uh, after about a year in there, they asked me to read a scripture every time the Rotary met. So I'd, I'd get a text that was kind of appropriate. Well, uh, we had Sharon Perez speak once. We had this attorney come, because and he had won this case in the Supreme Court, which really upset uh, you know these settlers, because they had I'm to sure. give the land back to the Palestinians, yeah. uh, because it, it was not like government land as such. It was actually personal land they had taken. Right. Even, but it's occupied territory, so it's not totally under Israeli law in, in a sense. So they're kind of free to do whatever they want to do, and the Palestinian authorities really don't have any uh, recourse. So anyway, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. that thing was resolved. They won. I mean, it was it was a pretty incredible case in the Supreme Court. So we invited that attorney to speak at the Rotary Club. So that day uh, that we spoke. Uh, I or he spoke. I my text that day was uh, Leviticus twenty five twenty three, where uh, God says the land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine, and basically you're only renters of it by keeping the law. Yeah, <laughs> that attorney he was smoking. He had his pipe, <laughs> and, and he went after I read it. He looked up and he goes, "I could have used that in court." <laughs> and so he so, said, "Well, you won it anyway. You didn't need the Torah to get you through it, but uh, I, you know that's uh, one of those, uh, I guess, convenient texts that they overlook. Although I think many of the Zionists are actually secular, even though they claim the land right. I, you know, it's kind of you, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Okay, so." Yeah, so so the 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 conflict being there that the the essence of Zionism is God's promise of the land, and if you're a secularist, you don't believe in God. Why would you lean on those promises in order to justify your yeah. political machinations? Uh, yeah, that's a that's an which, interesting yeah, cocktail. Which... Which also puts the uh, Christian Zionists in a bit of a quandary because Jesus never, ever referred to the land promise. He referred to the other promises, but never to the land promise. Right. And I think God fulfilled that promise. They did have the land. They did have <clears throat> the kingdom was established. 
But if you read Isaiah, Jeremiah, and any of the prophets, you find out why they lost that land. So it wasn't that God yes. didn't keep this promise. They didn't pay the rent. They didn't They mm. didn't fulfill the purposes for which God had made that promise, which was, in fact, to be a light to the nations, right. which right. today they're not a light. Uh, and I, but I, I tell people just because uh, there's a state entity, uh, a governmental entity named Israel, that doesn't exactly equate to the use of Israel in the Old Testament or Scripture, right? Um, any more than putting a uh, a Cadillac emblem on my VW would make it a Cadillac. Yeah. <laughs> You know, yeah. so I think making all of those connections, I think a lot of people just do that without really thinking through, mm-hmm. you know, through that or, or to say that the enmity between the Arabs and the Jews goes back to, you know, Ishmael or Jacob and Esau or whatever it is, or Isaac and Ishmael. I, there, there's no connection to that. It's mm-hmm. th- this is a contemporary uh, 20th. We're, we're living the the outcome of a 20th century parsing up of the Middle East after World War II and the establishment yeah. of the State of Israel. I mean, all it's of really that. Really, a colonialist intervention is it? It, the, it is. is it the I mean, that's you know, it's it, you know, it. Uh, Moshe Dayan was in Memphis uh, speaking once, and uh, some cr- kind of Christian Zionists or premillennialists uh, in the question and answer after the Six Day War said. Said uh, Moshe Dan, did 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 you really sense God's presence and power as you won that war? And he said, No, we won it by sheer military strength. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it didn't have anything to do with God. It had to do with we, yeah. We had a preemptive strike on Egypt, Syria, <laughs> and uh, kept them yeah. from taking us. But let me, so, let me so go I know. Back. Oh yeah. Let me go back to missionary perspective. I think uh-huh. as you. In terms of you know the the mission of God, um, as I was reflecting today, I I just you know as disciples of Christ, you you wonder how how Jesus and the and the apostles lived under. I mean, the Romans were brutal. They were ever mm-hmm. bit as I mean. Crucifying people along the sidewalks is brutal, and yet you don't find him or the apostles, even James, who lived in Jerusalem, engaging in the kind of politics that you find um, even with the so the Christian Zionists and others. That it was like their their perspective was keeping the main thing the main thing. That they they looked at. The foolish, well, maybe it was just foolishness that they were not going to engage in that. That they, they felt like their calling was a lot higher, or hmm. the human value of life was greater, and they leaned heavily into that. And so, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't have expected the Book of James to come out of Jerusalem, given the the mess that they had. I mean, how how could you write something like that if you lived in Jerusalem even today with all of this swirling around you as as colonial what or whatever it is, if it were the Romans. Yeah. Uh it does say that um I, I think something about Paul's admonition to set your mind on things above and not below because mm-hmm. uh 
so far, there's not much in our discussion today that would really encourage you if we keep so, so, looking at yeah. that. What's your response then to somebody that hears that and says, oh, okay, so you're one of those escapist Christians. You're one of those ones that serves the status quo of injustice because your your mind is on heaven and, well, too yeah. bad for, for, for worldly things. Yeah. Well, I that's where I go to Micah six eight because I think we we have a responsibility as it relates to justice, to uh, chesed, which is loving kindness mm-hmm. and humility. That's um, and I just don't see people when they get engaged in political discussions here or over there showing a hint of humility, because if yeah. if there was humility, there would be a recognition that, wow, we did something as well. We contributed uh, something to this. Uh, I, I like Tom Friedman. If you read any of his stuff, Tom, he, uh-huh. he's great. I mean, he's he's lived in uh, the Middle East. He understands. He writes, you know, for New York Times. He uh, he said, the world is flat. Is that is that his? Book. What's that? Am I, rec- am I recalling the title? The world is flat. Yes, he did that, but he's done a whole lot as well. He, yeah, he's, he's he's got a lot of books. I just, he's I got think a that's lot the one of I've good read. stuff. And is is uh, yeah. Well, he he said uh, yeah. Israel has done bad stuff, but it also lives in a really bad neighborhood. <laughs> no. You know, I mean that's kind of and so why get sucked into that when every side on this and every morning I'm listening to both what El Jazeera says, what Israel says to to others just to kind of get a, a sense of what's going on and mm-hmm. everybody mm-hmm. is kind of trying to get public opinion on their side, always telling you what's wrong with the other side, yep. Yep. never ever recognizing they did something to contribute to the mess. Which yeah, it's I this is a little condescending sounding, but but I'm just being honest, you know, as I listen to yet again, this conversation about the relationship between um, Palestinians and Jews unfold. And every every time the conversation seems to go. No, you started it. No, you started it. No, you started it. No, you started it. Well, if you go far enough back, well, if you go before that, well, if you go before that, and it just reminds me of my children. Like, it's so infantile. Like, where are the adults in this conversation who who don't who don't devolve into, nuh-uh, you started it? it that it matters so little. Historic. Yeah. It's like, it's a, it's a facade to plead the cause of justice when you're playing that game. It's like, yeah. no, I'm justified because you started it. You're not talking about justice when you're going back that far. Justice in yeah. in in the moment in Christian terms is is something very different than, you know, being justified in your in your present violence. And right. Yeah, I, I don't know. It just it's irritating to me. Yeah. I, I don't I don't mean that to sound condescending, but I, I do wonder where the adults are. If uh, any of you here would like to just get a good survey, there's several places you can go. The one I just recently saw was done about the time the war started by Bobby Harrington on Renew.org. Yeah. Renew.org, had, okay. Yeah, he had an article in Israelis and Palestine, Palestinians Understanding the Mutual Hostility mm. that uh, I thought was very well done. So I, I think he, he could give you a really good 
Cool. Uh, if you wanted a kind of a short, brief summary of kind of the, the history of what we're looking at that brought us to where we are. Yeah. Uh, the part I, I think I would add to it, though, is the culpability of U.S. foreign policy and the whole thing. Because mm -hmm. uh, from the very beginning, we've been a, a, a part of the problem. And our, I mean, our domestic policy is pretty bad, but our foreign is even worse. And mm -hmm. as you know, you have to live outside the U.S. to see how bad our foreign policy is. Right. And part of it is just our system. We, we you know, ambassadors are kind of the appointment of a president. And as presidents change, they, they really don't. I mean, there are some places there's been wisdom in leaving an ambassador for some time. But they don't get enough traction to really be able to fully understand it. And we just send neophytes who don't even have cultural background and orientation. They get, um, I have a good friend works with the Arab Center in Washington, D.C., who uh, he's brought in by the State Department for maybe a one to two day orientation for new ambassadors sent to Arab countries. Two day orientation to represent the United States. You know, I mean, it's just, mm -hmm. uh, I had, we, we have just, uh, well, I know, I mean, we both know why foreign policy doesn't get you elected. Domestic policy does. So, yeah. or at least domestic yeah. promises. And the only foreign policy is if you're pro-Israel and whatever that means. And without mm -hmm. any kind of responsible, uh, deeper uh, unpacking of, what is it that would be best for Israel? Because I think somebody needs to save Israel from itself. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think this is not what we're doing. And uh, it, it's got to come from outside. They they can't even, you know, hardly keep a government together right now. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we could we could go down those rabbit holes for a long time, probably. Right. Right. Yeah, I, I'm wondering... Um, maybe just to shift gears a little bit, but stay connected to this conversation. Um, because so many, like even as as I've read, the even a, a number of American presidents, recent American presidents, have taken positions on Israel out of religious conviction. It's it's this strange cocktail of politics and and uh, yeah, evangelical Zionism. Not just I mean, not just in a utilitarian sense. In that there is scarcely any more powerful advocacy group in American politics than the religious right, uh, who lobbies. I, I don't I don't know that people realize this, but. But I think it's arguable that they lobby harder for support of Israel than they do for anti-abortion law, and yeah. uh, it just doesn't—it just doesn't get the headlines. It doesn't—you don't see it as much. Um, but but I'm saying even aside from that political pressure, we've had even a number of presidents who who out of uh, a religious belief have supported Israel as some kind of instantiation of, of God's purposes. Um, and that goes back to quite a ways back to uh, a reading of history, a Christian reading of history 
and an understanding of the Bible, a hermeneutics that is largely about ostensibly mission, right? It's largely about the way that the church participates in the tides of history, the movements of history as God is unfolding the end time and, and, and so on. And there's like this mutual relationship where one's vision of the end fuels mission and one's participation and mission serves the end and they kind of reinforce each other so much so that that's almost inseparable from the contemporary world Christian movement. Uh, if you go back to, for example, the, the initial statements and founding documents of the La uh, Lausanne movement, it's there, right? There is, there is a premillennial, um, dare I say Zionism kind of built into the thinking about why we're doing what we're doing, why we're mobilizing, why we're putting billions of dollars into uh, foreign missions and so on. And that really causes me, particularly, you know, you and I coming from uh, Churches of Christ with a very unique set of historical conflicts about eschatology, end time stuff um, that has produced a, a strange cocktail in the present, it leaves me wondering, like, what what's our motivation for mission here? And uh, why, why without that, because I, I, I reject it, I reject the, the Zionist position as some kind of reason for Christian mission. Uh, but why, why, why do we engage with the world? You're a missiologist, a, 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 a a long-time practitioner and, and teacher of mission. So how do you think about mission in relation to eschatology and motivation? That's a big question and a, and a yes, good sir. question yes. for sure. Uh, it, <laughs> I, uh, I think if you look historically at the history of missions, at least within our fellowship, in the 19th century, uh, even into the 20th, I don't think eschatology drove them very much. I think it had more to do with soteriology. They, it was a matter of just getting the saved saved and, okay. you know, a strong commitment to seeking and saving the lost. Mm -hmm. um, now, I think when it comes to Israel, it's a different story. The first missionary sent by the uh, Stone Campbell movement and Alexander Campbell uh, was James Barclay. He went to Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it, it's not accidental that no. the first missionary was sent to Jerusalem. He was kind of a uh, doctor, pharmacist, whatever you could be from that day and time, and lived there a number of years, had intentions of uh, evangelizing Jews so the Lord would come again, right. and realized after a few years that. There, I mean, he was there when there were not that many Jews in uh, Palestine. This was under the Ottoman Empire, right. and they were predominantly Arabs. And he actually started developing some interesting relationships with Muslims. Even the the Sheikh 
of the valley that comes right out of Jerusalem, Wadi Joe's, he uh, he started meeting with him and uh, basically studying the Sermon on the Mount with him, which I thought was kind of interesting. <clears throat> he came back uh, during he got malaria, came back for to kind of for healing, and during that time he wrote a classic book uh, called Jerusalem City of the Great King. And uh, mm -hmm. it's it's available. I mean, it's it's really interesting. Probably one of the best description of Jerusalem uh, at that time. Well, he went back for a few more years, and then he lost his support during the Civil War and came back to the states. But he was the first missionary mm -hmm. from our fellowship. The second one was my granddad, my mother's dad, who went there in 1951. Uh, he, he saw me as I was less than a year old. Uh, only saw me that just a couple of times and went there, uh, went on a merchant marine ship when he was 65. No one would support him because he was a widower twice, uh, diabetic. You know, I mean, it's a, he took what Lily got from a veteran of two wars and social security and went to Israel. And I really think he too had a, an eschatological perspective mm -hmm. on bringing Jews to Christ. To our knowledge, he only baptized two Jewish ladies. And uh, I have his journal from his first year there. The other journals have been lost, unfortunately. But he, uh, he the reality of going there, at, now this was, you know, Israel has only been established in 47. So, I mean, it was still in the very pristine years, early years of the state of Israel. And he, he uh, even his first day in Jerusalem, he said, well, I may be a missionary in prayer only. <laughs> <laughs> That's a cool phrase. <laughs> yeah. He was uh, staying at the YMCA and realized this is not going to be easy. And after a couple of years, he moved to Netanya. And uh, he died over there and is buried in Jaffa. So wow. I never really got to know him. But I, I, I really think as he came, he went to Cincinnati Bible College. He, he, went, he was born in the Christian church um, uh, vein. And I, I, I don't, I, I see hints of it, uh, but he felt like God called him to Jerusalem. And mm -hmm. I think that was part of it. It was clearly the view of H.G. Spafford, who wrote, It Is Well With My Soul. He, mm -hmm. he took a, a group uh, and actually started the American colony in Jerusalem. And it, too, had strong <clears throat> uh, implications for the end times. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I think uh, anyone, it's it just somehow Israel uh, or Palestine or Jerusalem evokes those thoughts because I think Jesus ascended there. We're told he's going to come again. Uh, but I think when you start reading the, the Gospels as a whole, mm -hmm. it's going to be hard to conclude that we need to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Because it's pretty clear Jesus is a temple uh, of God now. There's no need for a temple. He's the temple of the living God. Mm -hmm. That, you know, Paul takes that particularly to the, the Greek uh, Gentile church in Corinth. And in both letters that we have, he says they're the temple of the living God. That yeah. God and then both uh, Stephen <clears throat> in Jerusalem for he was stoned. Paul on Mars Hill both said, our God doesn't live in temples made with hands. So, I, you know, I can't see how anyone, at least with a biblical theology, 
would assume that there is any value, any need to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem when, mm -hmm. you know, a temple really wasn't God's idea in the first place. You know, I think he, he wanted to be a light to the nation. So, uh, I, you know, when it comes to the mission of God, it, his mission is not centered around any one particular geographical location or one mm -hmm. ethnic group or one point in place and time. Uh, he is concerned about all nations. He's concerned about all peoples at all times. And uh, he's there. there is no single ethnic group that could honestly claim a corner on God's market. <laughs> You know, hmm. it is it is all uh, it, it's just a much bigger view that the end time discussion uh, to me is a very uh, maybe it's a motivation for some. But to me, that's not what truly honors God among the nations. What honors God among the nations is the lifestyle of the Sermon on the Mount. What honors God among the nations is the kind of transformed life that really reflects the character and nature of God. No matter where we are, no matter what kind of context we're in, peace or war, uh, Africa, Asia, Middle East, wherever it is, that that's going to be more fundamental to why we do what we do in the world, not one group dominating another or taking their land or you know, whatever it is. You know, it's interesting in Micah 6, 8, if you read those first few chapters of Micah, he's telling you it's wrong to confiscate people's lands, to, to take their lands. I mean, he defines justice there as respecting people's rights on their land. Right. And so it's, you know, and then uh, even Jesus said as he interacts with the Pharisees, you know, uh, even tells them, you know, he, he can't argue with him. He knows it won't get anywhere. So he says, you know, you guys go think about it. What what did Hosea say when I, yeah. I you know, I'm, I'm not really interested in sacrifice. I'm interested in something else. I'm interested in chesed. I'm interested in steadfast love and mercy. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that's that's the motivation for for why we do what we do. And it's the motivation that I think Jesus had in emptying himself of his glory, coming to earth in the incarnation in a mission that I think we both would agree, why didn't he just come full grown, do it three years and leave? Why did he have to be in Nazareth for all that time? You know, right. a little village that there, there's something about how and what Jesus did and who he was that should define our mission in the world, not when he's coming again. That That's yeah. just simply the... Uh, well, I, I think the parallel is, as you and I know, in grad school, I've I've said this often. I I've seen the difference in a student who comes to grad school just to get a diploma to hang on his wall, and a student who comes to actually learn whether he gets a diploma mm -hmm. or not. Mm -hmm. And I think that motivation for why I want to learn and why I want to better myself and serve God better. Uh, is going to lend itself to better results than the one I just want to have bragging rights and something on the wall that shows I finished a degree or something. Uh, and I, I kind of make the parallel to eschatology driving our missions when it comes to that kind of thing, although there is a very positive side to it, and that is that 
uh, God's vision of eternity is every tribe and language group will be there. And we we need to share that good news. We need to pass it on. We need to uh, be the witnesses and advocates for a life that God intended us to have uh, through Christ that was um, that, that's that's an abundant life that flourishes mm-hmm. uh, as God intended it it and all creation to flourish. Yeah. Right. I so just to think out loud about maybe the other the other view, it seems to me if I'm if I'm understanding them correctly, that why eschatology is often so powerful a motivator is the same reason that we see historically for almost the entire uh length of Christian history this repetitive, iterative furor about the end times are now, right? People just continually get swept up in some sort of prophetic movement where somebody's saying, all right, so here are the events. These are the signs of the times. This is what's happening. And the the human tendency to be swept up in that is, I think, about this longing for the meaningfulness of their moment in history, right? The longing for their lives to be, to be significant in some way in the, in the grand indifferent uh, span of, of historical existence. Right. And so it's, there's some utility to plugging into that. And I, I won't call it just emotionalism, but, that human tendency to feel like, oh, okay, if if I am living in such a moment, if if I'm actually watching prophecies be fulfilled around me, I'm watching nations rise and fall, and this is what Scripture's talking about leading to X, Y, or Z, depending on your theology, then yeah, I'll be very sacrificial with my money. I'll be very sacrificial with my life because this is so meaningful. This is so important. And um and I've just I've observed churches uh um uh, Christian movements leveraging that since that that longing for meaningfulness in order to infuse sort of vigor into Christian missions. I get the impulse, you know, from an administrator standpoint, there's, there's a, there is like, what, what can we, what levers can we pull here? And, and, and as someone who preaches, I have no problem trying to figure out how to excite people about the right things. Uh, but I just think the perspective is wrong headed enough that I can't I can't nod along. <laughs> I, I just think the eschatology is pretty bad, and so, so, I, so that's what that's why I raise the question ever. That's why I go, well, what's the motivation? Because I want you know I want to articulate that. I want to say like, what is this about? And I very much appreciate you saying, look, live live for the glory of God. That's that's sufficient. But it is it is more difficult to get church people excited about that for some reason. Um, <laughs> I don't know what what yeah. what are you thinking about that? Uh, well, I'm, I'm thinking if you want to add a 
A note for the listeners, I did publish an article on eschatology and mission in Restoration Quarterly a few decades ago. I've read it. I've okay. read it. Yeah. Well, so, that was that's really, really, truly why I raised this question, because yeah, I, I right. know you've thought about mission and eschatology. As right. I recall, you may you may remember better than I, but as I recall, um, your argument was one that I heard quite a bit growing up. Which which was essentially the motivation for mission is that there are people who are condemned and need to know Jesus. You should care about them. Right. And so um, I'm struggling with that, that perspective, precisely because I think so many of my peers and younger are not compelled by that i mean even if even if you were to convince them that that this is the this is the line the biblical the biblical position on the state of other human beings i don't i don't see them so it becomes this contextual question for me like i think that was powerfully motivating to an older generation and um I even remember kind of watching one of my professors and mentors in undergrad as he was teaching a a general education kind of mission class. So there were a lot of, you know, it wasn't just Bible majors, students from, and, and just being super frustrated with the sense that these kids just lack all compassion. Like, how do you not care? And it, it wasn't, relativism per se it wasn't like well maybe they are maybe they aren't uh lost or something it was that that just didn't compute so anyway that's why i i I read your your work on that appreciatively because by the way you are as far as i can find the only uh contemporary author in in our movement who has addressed that question i mean that i think that piece was written in like 91 yeah, and nobody's talked about it. So, so I've got all this stuff brewing. I'm thinking, what am I going to write about this? Because, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, well, so, I, so that, I, yeah. Say something yeah, about that, that motivation. Was, that was so long ago. I need to go back and see what's that. Because I, I, I'm not sure you represented me, right? I don't think I was. Well, that's why it's much better just to talk about it. So, yeah, right. So sorry, I, I'll have, I have to go back and see if I left that impression because I, that. Because I do agree that was a motivation for mission at, in, in, a, in a time. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it has to do with our own spiritual journeys, as even in our fellowship, and it's true in any fellowship, that so many, so much of the growth of the churches of Christ was driven by the seriousness of sin and lostness, and there's no mm-hmm. hope without uh, being born again of water and spirit and coming to faith in Christ. Uh, we did very little in disciple making, and we, right. we paid the price for that. Right. That I think the approach to uh, today is healthier in the sense of making disciples who are witnesses to the transformative power of God in Christ and in our lives and through His church. Uh, it, it's a turning point or tipping maybe it's come too late because you know there was a generation that's kind of been converted to the church that made us more sectarian and they said yes to church and kind of no to jesus Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. now it's shifted to saying yes to jesus and no to church Uh, right somehow they're being pitted against one another 
Yeah, they they really are. Then you have this whole issue of uh, church planning as opposed to disciple making and, you know, that kind of thing in some of our contemporary discussions. The motivation in those two, excuse me, examples um, is not the same. So your theology drives your practice. I mean, we've been saying yes. that all along. So without a, a, a mature theology or more developed or complex theology, uh, it could it we we're not going to plant the trees we want to plant. It's not mm-hmm. going to be healthy. That I appreciate this new uh, emphasis on disciple making. That we make disciples to make disciples. And we become witnesses to how God transforms our lives through Christ. That that is Mm -hmm. good news. Uh, Yet it cannot really happen without the humble recognition that we're sinners, that we have broken our relationship with God, that there is a lostness that I think in this generation uh, doesn't take us serious, you know, that that sin is sin. I mean, it's it it yeah. violates the very character and nature and will of God, and if I take that serious, I I will be motivated to to live up to what God created me to be the be, to be the best version of myself that God created me to be. Um, that should be the motivation, no matter when the Lord comes again. That's to me irrelevant. That when He comes again is just simply the blessing of my making good choices in my life now to do his will and share that blessing that comes in Christ with anybody, no matter where, who they are, where they come from yeah. and not view it as, um, you know, it, it's almost been viewed from a marketing perspective uh, of winning souls to a conquest perspective of campaigns to, you know, that those the language we use kind of reflects motivation and the outcome often is not what i think we really want it to be that i think uh simply becoming disciples of christ and witnesses to the power and presence of god in our lives is a motive that will i think penetrate the political the uh, cultural, the generational challenges that will always exist till the Lord comes again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I like that a lot. I, the way that I'm currently thinking about this, love to bounce it off of you, is akin to what you're saying, which is that you know, if I could, if I could rephrase you and then if i'm misrepresenting you again you can help me out we participate in mission because of who we are i mean that's in relation to holiness in relation to justice in relation to all of the all of the things we could list as essentially the character of christ because we are christ followers this is how we live in the world and and mission is just a necessary consequence of that identity. Of course that's what we this is how we engage with our neighbors, this is how we engage with cultural otherness, this is Christian life. And I would love for the church to hold that position, but I think it's actually 
I want to argue that it's deeper than that. That we engage in mission because of who God is. Uh, because, essentially, uh, as you put it, God is at work in the world. The triune God is at work, and I think the way that the, the Gospels are prone to talk about that work is the kingdom of God, right? God is at work in the world. The kingdom of God is breaking in. And that fact and the and the ability to observe that fact, to discern that reality and engage in that reality is part and parcel of being disciples of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And 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 so I find that to be a thrilling motivation that I, that I think Again, I'm thinking about my peers and younger. It speaks to something that they're far more passionate about. And that is the transformation of human history. That things would become different, right? Uh, But I think the really interesting thing about that, Everett, is the kingdom of God is Christian eschatology. It's it is it is an understanding of the present in view of the future, and in fact, some would even argue, I would argue, an interruption of the present by the future. It's the power of the future resurrection manifesting in the present. That's the eschatology that I'm sort of searching for and and thinking this. Is, we we need to talk more about this because I think it is incredibly motivating. Um. In a way that I mean, I wish it were. I wish it were sufficient to say to people, "Well, you're a follower of Jesus. Of course, you're supposed to do these things and live this way." But, but I, I'm. I suspect that it's even more motivating to say, "Look, this is what's this is what's happening," and it's not about prophecy fulfillment. It's about God actually at work in you and in the world. And that is an amazing thing to realize and then to recognize that you can participate in that. I, I think that's a, there's some potential there. I don't know. what. Do you, how does that strike you? Oh, that's great. I mean, I, uh, I, I have described it this way in terms, and this came from some of my research I did when I was at Fuller in my dissertation, that... Mm-hmm. The reason Christians and Muslims really can't communicate in a lot of ways and haven't been able to historically, particularly Western Christians, is our theology has uh, been so wrapped up in God's love. It's like it's all built on John 3.16, what God has mm-hmm. done for us, what what we get. To go, it's very uh, human oriented. It's, yeah. you know, it's God gives us, God gives me, God saves me, God came for me. He's going to redeem. I mean, all of these. It's it's very mm-hmm. uh, human oriented. Whereas Islamic theology is the reverse. It's very God oriented. So, uh, they you know, Muslim would view most Christian worship as a lecture and a concert. Whereas right, right. we view their worship as all prayer, and it is. It's all prayer, even though much mm. of it's scripted. It, it, most of it is. But it's prayer. You pray five times a day. The Friday prayers are longer, but it's all what they do for God. So we're like, and and their goal is to honor God. So mm-hmm. they reject the cross because they say, well, a God wouldn't allow that to happen. That doesn't honor God the way they understand honor. 
but their focus is on honoring God, not God loving us. And so we're like ships passing in the night. And the more you, and, and that's why I'm saying becoming a disciple of Christ um, and reclaiming the honor of God in our lives is the focus on God. It is God and it's his kingdom. Mm-hmm. And I think that to me, one of the little indicators of somebody getting what you're saying about the uh, kingdom come and his will be done is making reference to King Jesus. That's right. You know, so I think that's where I get the sense, okay, they see that, you know, well, our kingdom's not of this world, it's in this world, and we're a part of that that kingdom. And whenever he decides, as Jesus said, it's not for us to know those times. I mean, he put it in perspective. You just be the, let the power of God, you know, work through your life. Let him decide when the end comes. Yes. Uh, I'm yeah, sure be awake, be prepared, but. Right. Don't but, quit the guesswork because you just have no. That's idea. right. So just keep, <laughs> you know, stay busy and stay on course. Yeah. Right. So no, right. that's a good perspective, and I think uh, it it could really, uh, I, it gets us out of the total individualistic view, as if God is our personal God, and I, mm-hmm. I, this becomes a pet peeve of mine after living in a Middle Eastern culture for you know nine years. Is that we, we we've so personalized God that he, mm-hmm. it's like He's our own personal God when we are really His personal servants in His kingdom, right? And I think if we were to to get that view, we'd have a different view toward history, toward uh, I mean, it it is actually a totally different world view that mm-hmm. it is God's world, it's His kingdom. And it's his church, and we are here to serve, and we are here to fulfill his will. Not mm-hmm. he's the, he's some power that's you know giving me what I want, or yeah. just making me happy. He's here to to fulfill life, and we have it abundant. But that abundance comes with humility and submission to a power greater than ourselves, and we're part of something much bigger than ourselves. That kingdom is much bigger than ourselves, and when it is. We we don't engage in we're we're not going to be ethnocentric. We're not going to be uh, we're even going to be honest about our own our own country, our own nation, whatever. Because we know we're part of a kingdom far greater than that. That is living according to the purposes of God's creation. I mean, it even affects our view of creation itself. It, it's a it's a kingdom view. So I I'm I think you're right, and keep preaching it. <laughs> it sounds like what you're talking about is yet another manifestation of individualism's powerful influence in Western culture. And I mean, I've read others rail against, I have railed against this sort of uh, personal relationship with Jesus, soteriology, right? Do you have a personal saving relationship with Jesus? Uh, the you know, and, and it's commonplace to say things about the letters of the New Testament usually being addressed in the plural, right? The you there is y'all, and mm-hmm. and and there's a corporate sense uh, to to the commands and to the vision of Christian life. And uh, I've written about and advocated for community and 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 those sorts of things. 
But I wonder, it's not that we don't have a personal relationship to God. Um, obviously, prayer, um, you know, you prayed this morning. You did that personally. <laughs> mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a personal conversation. Um, in some ways, a private conversation as Jesus would have it in our, in our closet. Um, obviously, that's an inescapable dimension of, of, of Christian spirituality. I, I think the problem is not that there's a personal dimension to this. It's that, once again, our theology got co-opted by the, the pressure of having a good sales pitch. Right, because it's personal salvation that Second Great Awakening Pietism is selling. Um, my background went off because of my hand gestures. That's funny. Uh, <laughs> it was congratulating me for making a good point. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, if you if you make thumbs up or something, uh-huh. it'll yeah. Look at that. There it goes. Look at that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> getting fireworks in the background for our audio only listener mm-hmm. um you know that that religious background led to the the need to come up with again a motivation for accepting christianity right and the motivation is your own salvation your personal relationship with god your your interior life your spirituality, your experience of God. Um, and, and so finding that sort of motivating, interesting, sellable uh, theology resulted in the personal overwhelming everything else. And I don't think the corrective there is to deny the the simple fact that you know every human being can and and does have a personal relationship with God. Um it's just that that's not where the accent lies in New Testament theology, that's not where the accent lies in Old Testament theology for that matter. Um and and it and it's easy by overemphasizing that personal dimension to skew our understanding and and indeed our spirituality, I think, um, so that we need a corrective, just not, just not a total jettisoning of, of the, the personal dimensions. Why did I go down that bunny trail? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, no, I think good reflections. What uh, I'm trying to think of, you know, a couple of just practical applications of this is uh, when I have an opportunity to do some uh, coaching of new elders, mm-hmm. I I remind them that I think one of the toughest transitions to become a church leader is you you go from your own individual concerns to the concern for the whole. It's the group now becomes more important than the individual within mm-hmm. the church. That you you now carry responsibilities for the whole group, much like as a father, you know when you you become a father and then 
you add four kids, you begin to realize your concern is for the whole family. It's no longer just yours. And you sacrifice a lot of things uh, because of that. I mean, you, you really, I mean, there is genuine submission to the needs of your family. It's not just about you. And I think many have difficulty making that transition if they think, if their initial coming to faith in Christ is just about saving my soul and and forgiving my sins, I don't think they make the transition to the importance of the body of Christ. And they, you know, they get Acts 2, 38, 2, 32, 2, 38, but, you know, they, they have a hard time going from the being baptized for remission of sins to having all things in common <laughs> and to right. fellowship together. And I think that's very, that there's a reason those are very close together because I think they go together. And I think if, as we become disciples of Christ, belonging to the family of God, we know that's what we're entering. It's more than just having my sins forgiven. It's becoming a part of a family I may never have even had uh, physically that I I now have fellowship with people, and through that fellowship, God works in my life as they exercise their spiritual gifts on me in my life, as I as I use my spiritual gifts to bless them. There, there's, there's just this community perspective uh, of koinonia in Scripture that is lost on a very individualistic society and community that it's, it's, it's my life. I can do what I want to with it. I'm not hurting anybody, you know, what it, whatever it is, but by the same token, you're not contributing the gifts. You're not passing on what God has given you to others and enjoy that, the blessing that comes in living in community with God. Mm. So that, you know, it's, it's the individual versus the group uh, really does, in a very practical way, it comes up in terms of just how we lead and how we follow. Because having been in, I mean, I've worked with churches in 40 different nations. Mm-hmm. And one of the, I think, real issues we have is we're terrible followers in the U.S. We, I mean, this is one of the worst places in the world to be a leader because yeah. people aren't going to follow. And uh, in fact, I helped one church in Connecticut appoint elders, and they got called six months later, and they resigned. <laughs> and they said, <laughs> no, no need to lead if nobody's going to follow. And it, and they oh, got wow. the point. So it took about, I don't know, several years later, they tried it again, and people decided they'd follow the leaders. <laughs> so I always enjoy teaching and preaching on uh... – submission passages in the new testament because um, americans just do not like hearing that word <laughs> they no. just do not like to submit right it's a it's always an entertaining challenge <laughs> oh it is definitely well i wanted to add to what you said not only the blessing of of living in communion with god but the blessing that comes through that right um I often talk about the shift from thinking about what we're saved from to what we're saved for, mm-hmm. right? And I know many have many have used that language before. Yeah, it's not it's not good. an invention of mine, but and that theology stretches all the way back to Genesis twelve with Abraham, where there's being blessed and then there's being a blessing to the nations, and we tend to, I think, as Newbigin said, 
we tend to like the first half of that and forget the second half. And so I, I, I rail against individualism in my congregational work primarily because of that. Cause I actually think, you know, we, we do okay. We definitely have an easier time working on the life together stuff than we do the life for others stuff uh, where we get good at, at, at being together and supporting one another and even get to a level of intimacy and vulnerability and trust in, in our best moments as, as a little church. And still it's a whole other shift to say, and all of this goodness that you're experiencing the richness of this kind of communal life, it's not just for you. It, it It's supposed to be poured out in your neighbor's lives through you. And so it's, it's really supposed, what you're experiencing isn't the product. It's, it's like the formative experience that, that makes you capable of passing that forward to others. And, um, I don't know. It just it it's it's so challenging ever to 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 shift congregational mentality to what you know the word I would use for what I'm talking about is missional, you know, to to, to the idea that our very existence is being caught up in this in this outflow from God's life into the life of the world, and and that happening through us rather than for us. Uh, rather than just for us, because it is obviously it's for it's for we are we are a part of everyone. <laughs> it's for <laughs> for the whole world. Right. Um, so let me ask this question in relation to something you said earlier. I'm curious what your experiences have been as a longtime consultant, someone who's worked with so many churches, so many congregations, leaderships, so many students. Um, what what has your experience been in in regard to cultivating that more complex theology that you mentioned? You know, you said a more robust or more complex theology is going to be necessary, and I'm curious about what that has looked like for you in congregational settings, because I often feel this real disconnect between, uh, you know, MDiv students or of course, demon students or PhD students interest in more complex theology, and then what the local church is actually willing to say nothing of able, but just willing mm-hmm. to engage in terms of complexity. What has that been like for you? I haven't thought of it in those terms. Uh, well, reframe the... it for me. I mean, that'd be great. Yeah. What, what... Well, the. The first thing that comes to my mind is, because of the network I'm in, most of the invitations I get are from those who have been trained, who have okay. a more complex theology. So I, I yeah. now that and, and they're seeking to help mature uh, members in faith and churches, mm-hmm. you know, in faith, and that becomes a much more productive exercise with them because they're mm-hmm. they kind of have a theology to support it 
the ones that don't, and, and by the way, invariably, everywhere I go, there's always at least one elder that says, what does a guy from Memphis have to tell us about how we do church here? <laughs> you know, or some, you know, that just doesn't want yeah. anybody from the outside. Don't. And yeah. uh, I, I use that as a barometer. Uh, <laughs> I had that at one church and uh, I had Friday night, Saturday, and then Sunday afternoon, I typically have a follow-up with the elders, just uh, kind of next action steps, what comes out of this, that kind of thing. And so <laughs> I'd already been tipped off by the preacher, even before I came, that one of the elders was totally against me coming. It, it, you know, he was not going to, but the others wanted it, so he kind of went along with it. So we we have this meeting, and the <laughs> we we get into the room, and before we start, he says, I need to say something. And, and I looked at the preacher, and he just tensed up. He just thought, oh, no, I thought we were going to get through the weekend without, you know, <laughs> this kind of a scene. Well, he said, you know, I've learned more from Dr. Hufford's questions than anybody we've ever had come here. And it was like it kind of blew everybody away. But I think what I'm finding is uh, it, there's an innocence to all you know these churches that mm -hmm. uh they just haven't asked those questions and it's asking a different set of questions that oh, sends really them to reading scriptures differently or looking at themselves differently and right. you know and, and that's what uh professional coaches will will tell you that coaching is about asking questions to help the the coach e think from within their own experiences and drink from their own wells because they mm -hmm. just haven't asked that question. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of people have done a lot of study of the Bible, but they go to it sometimes. If, if you go to scriptures with just the question, what must I do to be saved? You're not going to get to much meat. Yeah. But if you go, you, with may, question, you may go, you may go away sad. Right. Or it's like, <laughs> well, this isn't relevant. It's not answering my question. But right. if the question is, how do I become a more faithful disciple of Christ? There's a lot of scripture that can help you from cover to cover. Or how can I honor God through my life? There's a lot right. there. And so it's asking, and that to me is still a different question than how does God love me? Uh, that I find, that's in community. We cannot mm -hmm. feel God's love and grace outside the community of believers. Just yeah. you, You're not going to get that just reading it in the text. So I think it's the it's the questions we ask in creating a, a thirst for a passion for that maturing in Christ so that we can be more faithful servants of God, you know, and honor mm. him. So mm. that's what I'm finding. And I, I just think it's, uh, you know, when the light bulb comes on I, I, and, and, you know, you've taught as well, you know, when you teach and the light bulb comes on, that's great right. when you preach and. You know, they, they see something, it's it's sort of like it's always been there, but they've just not uh, sought it out. Mm -hmm. But if they start mm -hmm. seeking it and see how truly rich Scripture is, you, you really want to stay deep in study of the Word. It's, it's a blessing yeah. for us. Yeah. That's a really cool vision of uh, theological education, right? So learning to ask good questions. I like that a lot. But speaking of theological education, <laughs> uh, how are you feeling these days about its status? Uh, and I'm, you know, we can stay, we can stay just in, in our own tradition for this congregation, for, for this conversation. But um, 
but there's a there's a broader movement going on that uh your your long career puts you pretty you know in, in deep contact with i'm curious what you're making of the closure of the contraction of bible colleges and seminaries and so on and and what that means for the church in the next 20 years uh, yeah that's a for somebody who's you know been in graduate education for most of my career right uh it's kind of painful to see um but there are several things. Dan Alshar was president of Association of Theological Schools, ATS, that accredits, you know, seminaries. Mm -hmm. And uh, about 20 years ago at one of the ATS annual meetings, he, he would always have the opening address. And, I mean, this was 20 years ago, and he made this statement. Well, it stuck in my mind, and I think it's proven to be true. He said, um, theological seminaries, are on an iceberg in an age of global warming. Yeah. And it has proven to be true um, all, all over. And I think uh, the closing and, and changing of our, our own graduate programs is evidence of that. And, and there's a, it's a very complex thing. There's local uh, and national contextual factors. There's mm -hmm. local and national institutional factors, all of which contribute to what's happening. And we could go to each one of those and, and kind of unpack it. I don't think we have time to do that this morning. But I do think it is a sign that I think theological education, um, I, I think the ones that are staying vibrant are the ones where they truly had you know, we've we've called it churchmen who were professors, where they they saw they sought to make sure what they were teaching and researching had application and value to the local church. Yeah. The ones that became disconnected and they they got into their cloud and ivory palace, as it were, or ivory tower. Um, they they ceased to have value, and and if mm. they don't if I mean it's an indication that the church has not seen value <clears throat> if the product of those schools come into our churches and don't bless that church for mm -hmm. whatever reason. So I think there's a there is a sense of it. Maybe it's a judgment on, on one hand. Uh, on the other hand, it's also of uh, a kind of a trend I think within churches that. <clears throat> I think this is judgmental, I guess, but we're watering down the word hmm. and we're going into more of a popular Christianity that doesn't have a, it's a more matter of what you feel at the moment rather than historical theology or biblical exegesis and research and so on that uh, we've become more existential in that sense or more in the moment than we are seeing that we really should do more than live life one day at a time, and our theology needs to be bigger than one day at a time. Mm -hmm. And so as a result of that, we are, uh, I, I think, reaping uh, what we've sown in, in some ways. So I, I think mm -hmm. there's a lot of culpability to go around for everybody. Um, it's, but it's regrettable because I've seen some 
I, I have seen in my own experience of the impact that good theological education has had on ministers who've gone out and given a lifetime of ministry um, and done well. They they stayed with the church. They grew with that church. They helped the church grow. And they would tell you time and again, had it not been for those transformative years uh, at Harding School of Theology or wherever they went, they would have never been able to do that because it provided the resources and the, the, their own spiritual growth and maturity and knowledge of the word that equipped them to do a really difficult job. Preaching is not easy. Teaching is not easy uh, because they're, they're so, you know, I mean, it, it demands a lot of interpersonal maturity, discipline of study communication, uh, effective. I mean, you just start listing all this, the, the demands of competency for leading a church in a society that wants bigger churches that are more complex uh, is just huge. And as a result of that, even churches have not encouraged the development of uh, ministers from within their own uh, family. They expect to pipe one in, you know, order one, order a new preacher on Amazon. He'll get here by, mm -hmm. you know, noon tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And uh, <clears throat> that's it. So it's a crisis of ministry that's probably greater than just the crisis of theological education because we had difficulty mm -hmm. in recruitment. Uh, the demand for the, the training has not been uh, yeah. adequate to meet the needs. And in our fellowship, we had too many grad programs basically, mm -hmm. that we saturated uh, our fellowship with it, that uh, I think reality is is kind of impacting that as well. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit overextended. Um, it's a curious, it's a curious quirk of Churches of Christ that we had such a boom in theological education that produced people who did terminal degrees were qualified to teach. And so we could actually build out faculties for way more programs than the size of our, the size of our fellowship right. needed. Um, yeah. Just an interesting, I mean, I, I, I so appreciate our love for the study of God's word. And I mean, there's some, there's some really um, lovely roots to that historical flourishing Right. That, that I very much appreciate, but we did sort of paint ourselves in a corner institutionally, and uh, and now where do all these uh, where do all these PhDs go, Everett? Uh, can you can you point me in in a, in a direction? <laughs> well, I heard there's uh, I'll give you some references later. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Well, my experience of theological education and then ministry just resonates perfectly with what you were describing. Um, I, you know, I'm being, I'm being a little facetious about, you know, looking for a job in, in the Academy while the Academy is shrinking and in particular the theological Academy, but, um, but really my lament and the, and the questions that I continue to ask about the future of theological education 
are about the church. I mean, they're about that, that's 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 what it serves. The equipping of the church is ultimately what's at stake for me. And and I lament that because my experiences, as you say, have been those in which the training, the learning, the study, as uh, as Jack Lewis would have said it, the ministry of study, made me capable in ways that would have been otherwise impossible mm-hmm. and blessed others, new disciples, churches, and so on, in ways that would have been otherwise impossible. And I mean, of course, that's what you want out of out of uh, a service, an institution like a university or a seminary or something, you want it to be doing something that's necessary that you couldn't, you know, it's providing a necessary service. Uh, and that, and that has simply been my experience. Now I get the, I get the fact that there is such a thing as an ivory tower and there is such a thing as, as, you know, um, scholarship for its own sake and merely academic work and all of that kind of stuff. Of course, of course that's real, but, um, yeah, I, I far more often experienced a, a profound appreciation for what I learned in, in, in graduate school and, and even in undergrad because of what it what it meant to churches, because of what it, it means for ministry, for mission, and so on. Um, and I, I I very much appreciate you because of that. You've given your life to theological education and been an unbelievable advocate of it and and practitioner. I've learned I've learned a lot from you. If, I, if we had more time, I there were some there were some things that I would love to talk about. So we're going to have to do this again, uh, just to go over some of those lessons that that I learned from you and would would love to share with the audience in this format. Now they don't have to sign up for your class. They can just, you know, they could just listen to the podcast. So okay. there's a there's a commercial for a future episode, but um thank you so much Everett for taking the time. Um I'm I'm deeply grateful and and just happy to have gotten to chat for a while. Well, thank you, and I, I wish you well on this podcast uh, adventure too. I think it's a, a great way to communicate and pass on, and and to basically engage uh, in some conversations that uh, I think would be of interest to uh, to others with some of your shared interests. So, I appreciate being yeah. a part of it. Yep. Well, thank you, and uh, we'll talk again soon. So, God bless. Thank you. Have a good day. All right, you too.